Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to First Baptist. I'm glad that you're here, glad that you're listening. It's a cold morning as we're all gathered in here together. But of course, we are very thankful that you've chosen to be with us this morning and chosen to listen to this message as we learn together. And this morning, we're going to begin a new series as we look at the Bible. You know, when we gather in church, we all come with a lot of experiences from our past, opinions that we have, knowledge that we have, maybe even questions that we have. And some of us perhaps have been in churches or come from backgrounds where the worship services were very animated and loud. Others come from churches that were very solemn and quiet. And some are new to church and still kind of learning new things about how churches tend to operate. But what the majority of us have in common is the belief that what we know about God and how we are supposed to live is somehow revealed to us in the Bible. You know, just last week, a representative from the Gideons spoke to us about their Bible distribution ministry. And this gentleman shared with us stories of how just by reading this book, lives were forever and radically changed and transformed by Jesus Christ. And there are countless stories throughout the ages of how God used his word as revealed in the Bible to introduce people to him, even wild personalities that we would never expect would bend their knee to Christ, ultimately how they are transformed and how folks have been transformed by the saving power of Christ. But as marvelous as we believe this book is to be, and I do believe it's marvelous, I also believe that we can appreciate it all the more by understanding how God gave us the Bible over time, its construction, what's it, it, what it is, its contents, its themes, its beauty, and its preservation over time. Indeed, the story of the Bible is not a tall tale of a book floating down from heaven to earth on a pair of used angel wings, complete and leather-bound. But the story is even more fascinating and miraculous than that. And so today's message is somewhat of an overview of the Bible, what the Bible has to say about itself, why we can trust it, and how God has chosen to speak to us primarily through the Bible, a book like nothing other. And much of what I will share today will be considered more informational rather than inspirational. You've probably noticed that I'm a little bit better at providing information rather than inspiration. I believe I can provide good advice from time to time, but this advice often comes in blunt ways as compared to some of the wonderful and sympathetic personalities that many of you have or many of you listening have. The Holy Bible is a book, as we know. In fact, Bible means book. But for the Christian, it's not merely just a book, but it's the book. Furthermore, it's not just one large volume. Rather, it's a collection of 66 books. We often refer to the 66 books of the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. And while certainly it's true that several of these would be considered books, like the large volumes of Genesis or Exodus or even the historical books like First and Second Samuel, it's perhaps more accurate to refer to many of them as documents, the letters that we have from the Apostle Paul, for instance, or some of the poetry that we have in the Psalms. Some of these are long, sweeping historical stories like Kings and Chronicles. Some, again, are beautiful poetry like we find largely in the Psalms. Others are biographical informations like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament. And still others are prophetic like Isaiah, Ezekiel. 
and revelation. And this is with a host of other different types of genres and writing that we find in the pages of Scripture. And speaking of that word Scripture, what do we mean by that? Scripture comes from the Latin word scriptus, and it means writing. Over time, it's come to mean holy Scripture, and rightly so, the holy writing of God. So I want us to, f- to first look at the Old Testament, again, kind of an overview. And my prayer and my intention is for us to gain an awe and appreciation for God's providence and care given to us through His Word. This comes from the first psalm in the Psalms. You can find it there taking up a large portion of the Old Testament. And this is the very first psalm that serves as a gateway to all of the other psalms that one can read. The author writes this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You know, there are many passages that we could have selected to highlight God's word from the Old Testament, but I selected this one because of its sweeping thoughts on a life given over to loving God's word. And once again, its introduction to the beauty of the 150 Psalms that are in the Old Testament. Verse 6 in this psalm is the key to understanding the relationship between God and the way of the righteous. The way of the wicked and the way of the righteous are contrasted, and the key difference is that the righteous meditates on the law of the Lord. Now again, today is more informational and topical rather than inspirational or a verse-by-verse exposition, so I'm not going to go through each of these verses in Psalm 1, though Uh, That would be a very worthy use of our time. Rather, I want us to examine the word of the Lord, the law of God, if you will, in broad strokes. There are many important questions a person can ask in their lifetime, but without question, the most important inquiries that can, can be narrowed down to just a few that lead to a complete worldview and understanding of our existence. These questions, I believe, is one, where did I come from? Two, who created me? Three, is there a God? And finally, has God spoken? I feel confident that in saying that everyone here and most people listening would grant, yes, there is a God. But what about has God spoken? And if he has, then how, how has he spoken? Thankfully, as Christians, we believe God has spoken and we know how, and his word illumines how he has done this. The Bible reveals that God has made and continues to make himself known in two ways, general revelation and special revelation. Now, bear with me for just a moment because this will perhaps seem a little academic. I want us to first discuss general revelation. Most of you know I love to hike. If you had to determine any bona fide hobby that I have, it would be hiking. I don't care where, as long as it's a trail. It can be flat and barren. It can be 
lush and covered with trees and plants. It can be on the shore of a great ocean or on the side of a small pond. Hiking and eating peanut butter are my hobbies. And I love seeing God's handiwork in the natural world. It causes a great sense of gratitude to bubble up inside of me as I examine his multifaceted beauty. Just the visual aspect of it, much less all of the layered biological processes that are taking place across the many ecosystems of the world. For me, it's a worshipful experience. I know not everyone worships in that way, and that's fine. But for me, it can be a very worshipful, awe-inspiring thing. And I'm going to provide now what may seem to be a strange illustration, but once again, bear with me for just a moment. Imagine that for some unknown reason, a person awakes one day in the middle of a forest with no memory of their past, no idea of who they are, where they came from, or where they were at, and they begin to observe the natural world. Once they got past the shock of their circumstances, they would behold their surroundings and naturally begin to have questions. The magnificent trees, the sun in the sky, the clouds rolling by against the backdrop of this beautiful blue, the singing of the birds, the coolness of a breeze, the sweetness of fruit, all of these would make them wonder, why is this here and who made it? Who made me? Intrinsically, they would know that the natural world did not explain itself. They would conclude that something had to make it. Now, let's say that this same person began to encounter other groups of people who woke up in the same predicament. They have no memory of, the pa of their past, who they are, where they came from, but they just exist trying to make sense of the world. In addition to knowing that someone had to create the world and the people in it, they would also have a sense that it would be wrong to murder other people. It would be wrong to steal from them. It would be wrong to lie to them. It doesn't mean that they would not do any of these things, but they would know that it was wrong. Within them, there is an intrinsic moral law, an idea of what is right and what is wrong. The famous philo philosopher Immanuel Kant says that there are two things that fill his mind with ever-increasing admiration and awe, the starry heavens above and the moral law within. Now, you may be wondering, what in the world does this have to do with God speaking to us through the Bible? Well, the Bible touches on this. The Bible teaches that God reveals himself through creation. I'll again borrow from the Psalms here. David wrote, King David did in Psalm 19, that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. The intricacy of God's creation does indeed reveal God. And I think it even tells us a lot about who God is, his attributes. He is most certainly a God of beauty. He is a God of design, creativity, and brilliance. He desires to give his creation good things, beautiful flowers, marvelous animals, sweet smells, melodious sounds, tasty food. He is majestic and he is vast. But what of the moral law, this intrinsic sense of some rights and some wrongs, of this justice 
that seems to bubble up within our heart, the sense of justice. Well, the Apostle Paul addresses this as well in Romans. He says, when the Gentiles do, who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. It's interesting that he says that, that there is something within us, a law that God has written on our hearts. So to summarize, the Bible reveals to us that God makes himself known. He is not hidden, if you will. He reveals himself by general revelation through his creation and through a divine law written on our hearts. But this is not a full and complete revelation. Alas, there emerges a problem. Paul addresses this also in the book of Romans. Romans 1, 21, he says, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So despite all of the beauty that is so evident to us, despite even the things that emerge within our hearts that are evidence from God, many have suppressed it and changed it and altered it for a lie. You see, the Bible also teaches that humanity is in a fallen state, separated by God, or separated from God, I should say, by sin. It is possible, it is possible for us to look at the beauty of this world and all its splendor, and even look within ourselves and somehow arrive at the conclusion that these things explain themselves completely without the need for God, or just as unfortunate, all sorts of other beliefs that are artificially concocted and we have people bowing down to statues made of wood, stone, or gold. Return with me for a moment to the Garden of Eden. God had created mankind in his image. Man and woman, he had created them in his image. There was perfect fellowship between God and humanity. There was no sin that separated us from a holy God. But when Adam and Eve, and I do believe that they are historical figures, essentially spat in the face of God and said, I'll do it my way on my terms, corruption entered creation, sin separated us from God, and humanity exchanged the truth for a lie, and so many people still do that today. And many of these lies are very clever, very complex, and very deceiving. And so now I want to us to examine something called special revelation. God did not abandon us. In his grace, he pursued us to rescue us from sin. You know, I've referenced a passage from the Old Testament, and now I want to present one from the New Testament. The Apostle Paul gives us insight into this special revelation from God, specifically through God's word in the Bible. In Paul's second letter to his dear young friend Timothy, this is what he wrote. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now verse 16 is going to be our central focus. All scripture 
is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You know, often when I read scripture publicly, I will say something like Luke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit or Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit or the psalmist under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and so on. And I perhaps take it for granted that everyone knows what I am referring to when I make that statement. And 2 Timothy is very helpful in understanding this key biblical truth. Paul tells Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. This book, the Bible, is a God-inspired book breathed out from God himself. This means something much more than saying God inspired the men who wrote it, even though we believe he did. God also inspired the very words that they wrote. We notice that the scripture doesn't say here all scripture writers are inspired by God, even though they're, they're, that was true. And yet it doesn't go, but it doesn't go far enough. The very words they wrote were breathed by God. Now, I'm a dork, as you all know, so I love the original words of some of these treasured scriptures. And I don't think that we have to know these original Greek words or Hebrew words in the Old Testament to understand the Bible, but they can often unearth a layer of meaning that gives us a deep, deeper understanding to what God is saying. So when Paul says all scripture is God-breathed, God-breathed, the Greek word used here is theonoustos, which is the combination of theos, theos, meaning God, and noustos, meaning to blow or to breathe. That word P-N, starts with a P, P-N-E-U-S-T-O-S. We get words like pneumonia and other things that have to do with breathing and pulmonary things from that word. And so the original Greek in this word is literally God-breathed. Some years ago, Jerome translated the Bible into Latin. In fact, it was in the 4th to the early 5th century, and he used the term here, diventus inspirata. Inspirata is where we get the English word inspiration. So nowadays, though, when we say the word inspired or inspiration, we usually mean that something or someone was uh, inspired to write a musical piece or a book or a movie or some other work of art. But that's not really what Paul is trying to say here or is saying in 2 Timothy 3.16. He's not just saying that as man thought about God, that God acted in some kind of artistic way and ultimately wrote the scriptures. He's actually saying that the scripture is breathed out by God himself. Now, occasionally you'll have some critics that will make the statement here and they'll say that this doesn't mean anything because it's self-referencing. Of course the Bible is going to say that it was inspired by God. Anyone could write a book and say that it's inspired by God. Well, of course it is self-referencing. Of course the Bible is going to say it's Holy Scripture. If it didn't make that claim, then you would have other critics saying that it didn't make any such claim within the Bible. Yet the difference is that the Bible's claim to be Holy Scripture has been tested and proven throughout time across the centuries. You know, every generation, including now, gives rise to those who really believe that they will finally put the nails in the coffin that will bury the Bible, yet they never, ever are successful. 
The Bible outlives all of its pallbearers and outworks and outinfluences all of its critics. One commentator remarked that the Bible is an anvil that has worn out many, many hammers. There is no book like the Bible in its consistency. There is no book like it in its honesty. There is no book like the Bible in its survival. And there is no book like the Bible in its influence and life-changing power. So as we draw this to a close, some timeless takeaways here. What does it mean that God has spoken, that God has spoken to us through His Word? Well, one, we come to know God through His Word. A simple way to put it might be God takes out the guesswork. I mentioned general, general revelation earlier, God revealing some of who He is through His creation. But through the Bible, God has given us an all-sufficient understanding of who He is. We know His character, His attributes, and who we are before God. In the Holy Scriptures, we learn of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We learn of His eternality, His mercy, His goodness, His grace, His holiness, His righteousness, His justice, His sovereignty, His love, and so many more. The more, and the more familiar we become with the Word of God, the more we understand His voice. We see how He acts in the world and throughout history. Fear is diminished. Uncertainty begins to fade. Joy becomes more real. And eternity becomes such a great promise. And eventually the bits of the Bible that perhaps were once so mysterious and difficult begin to become illuminated as we understand what God has given us. Secondly, the Bible keeps us from false teaching. We honor God and His Word as much as possible simply by letting the text explain and teach itself to speak for itself. To be blunt, the devil preys on those who do not understand what God has revealed in the Bible. Counterfeit religion emerges from a lack of understanding of God's truth. The commentator Clark says that false doctrine cannot prevail long where the sacred scriptures are read and studied. Error prevails only where the book of God is withheld from the people. The religion that fears the Bible is not the religion of God. Thirdly, God's word is profitable. Paul wrote that to Timothy, Timothy pardon me, and said that God's word is profitable. He uses this word, and in this case, the word profitable means being beneficial, useful. He, Paul wrote, Timothy, continue in these things because the Bible is profitable. It's profitable for doctrine, telling us what is true about God, what is true about mankind, the world we live in, and the world to come. It is profitable for reproof and correction to things that our current world despises heavily, and I would imagine that previous generations did as well. It gives us the authority to rebuke and correct us. We are all under the authority of God's Word, and when the Bible exposes our doctrine or our conduct is wrong, we are wrong, not the Scriptures. The Bible is profitable for instruction in righteousness. It tells us how to live in true righteousness. And there is here the instruction of grace, that true righteousness only comes through Jesus Christ. And finally, the Bible transforms us. The Bible transforms us. This all means something else very simple. We can understand the Bible. 
Paul wrote that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Paul told Timothy, continue in these things because the Bible makes you complete and equipped for every good work. Complete doesn't mean that the whole Christian life is about reading the Bible or that the only important thing in good ministry is just good Bible teaching. Complete means that the Bible leads you and I into everything we need. If we are both a hearer and a doer of the word, we will be a complete as a follower of Christ. This reminds us that we are not in the business of just building sermons, but in equipping the saints for the work of ministry. And one of the ways that the Bible transforms us is through our understanding of the Scripture. Paul wrote in Romans 12, 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. When we let the Bible guide our thinking, our minds are renewed and transformed so we begin to actually think like God thinks. But there's another, another level that the Bible transforms us and it is by spiritual work, a spiritual blessing which God works in us as we continue to let him speak through us. And this is the great truth of the God-breathed scriptures. One can't help but read them and be transformed by its truth. This is a spiritual work that goes beyond merely our intellectual understanding. The Bible tells us of eternal life. The Bible spiritually cleanses us. The Bible brings us spiritual strength. And the Bible has the power to spiritually build faith in us as we draw closer to Christ and abide by its teaching. I want to close with these words, and I'll be curious if anyone will know their origin. It was said, We present you with this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this book, that keep and do the things contained in it. For these are the words of eternal life, able to make you wise and happy in this world, wise unto salvation and happy forevermore. Through faith which is in Christ Jesus, to him be glory forever. Amen. These were the words spoken on June 2nd, 1953 by the Archbishop as Queen Elizabeth II was coronated as Queen in the United Kingdom and all of the Commonwealth realms. She was then presented the Bible as what was to be her great source of truth and the guide of all that she did for the country under the Lordship of Christ. You know, I hope we have such a high view of God's Word as the anchor point and the God for our life. Does God exist? Yes. Has God spoken? Yes, immensely so. And through these scriptures, we can know him deeply and intimately and discover not only that he knows us, but that he loves us. Pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, I feel confident that any person who is desiring to know the truth that if they pick up your word and, the, and begin to read it, that you will make yourself known to them and that they cannot help but be transformed by the truth that you had revealed to us, not because it, is, because it is not simply a book that has been given to us with some great teachings and proverbs, because, but because they are the very word of God. And Lord, as we have started this study today and continue through it for the next few times as we gather together, 
help our appreciation or admiration grow not only for this book that is perhaps sitting in our laps, but that we grow in admiration and worship and awe of you who have loved us so much that you would give us this word, the words of eternal life, that we can know Jesus as our Lord and Savior. God, thank you for your love. Thank you for Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.